Hello, and welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Maisha Kai, managing editor of The Glow Up, and today we are talking with the amazing writer Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif is an award-winning poet, essayist, and cultural critic. He has written four books, including the 2017 collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, which was named a book of the year by such outlets as Esquire, NPR, Oprah Magazine, and the Chicago Tribune. And in 2019, his book, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest, was a New York Times bestseller, a finalist for the Kirkus Prize, and was long listed for the National Book Award. Hanif's fifth and latest book came out in March of this year and is called A Little Double in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. It's a deep dive into the histories and performances of both well-known Black entertainers as well as some unsung artists. I had such a rich conversation with Hanif. We talked about everything from our love of soul train to the wonder that was Josephine Baker, to whom this book is also dedicated. And just the joy he took in writing this book is so apparent when he talks about the process. It truly was a gift and a gift I look forward to sharing with you. So with that, please enjoy Hanif Abdurraqib. Hanif, welcome to It's Lit. Thank you so much for having me, Maisha. It's great to be here. I cannot tell you how excited I am to have you on the podcast today. I've admired your work for a while, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have. But before we dig into A Little Devil in America, we have a little icebreaker at It's Lit. This is a podcast about Black books and writers and thought leaders like yourself, poets. So we like to begin every episode by asking our guests to name at least one book or piece of written work that has been a game changer for you, you know, uh, just kind of broke oh, the whole yeah. thing wide open, right? So what was that piece of work? Or, you know, it could be a book, it could be books, you can name more than one. But what was that for you? Uh, the People Could Fly by Virginia Hamilton. Oh my God, uh, I have that book in this house. <laughs> yeah, 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 I have. I actually just got a first edition copy that I found. Wow. Uh, you know, Virginia Hamilton's an Ohioan like me. Mm. Um, you know, her and Toni Morrison are really two big guiding lights for me. But, you know, Virginia Hamilton, I read The People Could Fly when I was really young. Or I had mm-hmm. it, you know, it was just in my house. My parents had it. And it was kind of the first time that, even without knowing it, of course, when I was like seven or whatever, I wasn't thinking about the stakes of of black magical realism but it was mm-hmm. the first time i think that i understood black folklore and the power of black folklore was through virginia hamilton and uh just immensely thankful for her work and really thankful for that book always well i love how fast you answered too because like sometimes people really sit there and they mull over it but that is a book nobody's mentioned before but as soon as you said it i saw the cover like yeah. i swear to you i have this book in this house and you're gonna make me dig it out because i was also really young when i when i first encountered it and it is Oh, man, that's so cool. I love that so much. It's interesting um, because I think it is one of those books. So I think it's one of those books that people know, especially Black yeah. folks who came up in a certain era. Yeah. Who, like, we all know it, or many of us know it. But it gets so forgotten. But the minute someone brings it up, it's like, oh, I remember that cover. I oh, remember everything yeah. about it. It's like a gong kind of yeah. goes off in you. Yeah. Um, which actually leads me <laughs> to my next question. Because, you know, we're we're here to primarily talk about your latest book, a Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance. And similarly, you just talked about magical realism, and I would say similarly, this is a book I can only describe as magical. And that is not a phrase that I typically associate with nonfiction. <laughs> it's just not. Understandable. But, um, it is apt for me here because 
I think any time a piece of art compels me to rethink the limits of what that particular medium could be, it's magic. And I was so deeply inspired by what you did here. I mean, this this book is poetry, it's memoir, it's this extensive and incredibly well-researched entertainment and, and American history. It's critical race theory, uh, you know. Um, and it also, in the process, manages to be incredibly evocative and visual. So it reads like a piece of fiction or, or like even like a screenplay, right? Was this a vision that you had for A Little Devil in America when you began this project? No, I mostly... So two things happened. Um, I shifted the spirit of the book like halfway through. Mm. Um, you know, at first my goal was, my thought was that I was going to write a book about appropriation and minstrelsy in the ways that Black performance has been uprooted by from Black performers and repurposed through the white gaze and white lenses and profited off of. But then I was like, I that wasn't that fun of a book to write because I was, in order to follow that line of inquiry, I realized that I had to center whiteness even if I didn't want to. Or I like had to offer too much space to whiteness, even if it wasn't centering. Yeah. And I had to offer like more space to it than I was actually interested in. And I was kind of like, well, this is, you know, in my head, I was like, this isn't really fun. You know, this isn't really, um, it's more upsetting than anything. And around that time, I was thinking a lot about Miss Toni Morrison, who talked so much about removing whiteness from the imagination and then seeing how much room we have. And that happened around the same time I'd gotten this hard drive of Soul Train episodes, of almost every Soul Train episode from 1971 to 1989. Somebody um, loves you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, you know, it was a friend. I called him a favor to a friend, and they sent it to me. Actually, just they sent me all the episodes from like 1990 to 1997 that I'm excited to dive into. And for some uh, reason, I'm, I, I have a downtime. suspicion who this friend might be. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny every time I talk about it because uh, I've talked about this hard drive a lot. People, people have their guesses. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, you know, so I was watching just hours of Soul Train footage, mm. just hours and hours and hours. And I'd watch reruns when I was a kid. But the difference is, you know, coming up in the 90s and watching Soul Train reruns, you're immersed in like the 70s with when a commercial hits, you're back in your 90s era. Watching it like this with the commercials built in with the Johnson product commercials and all that, I was like, I'm really in the world. I'm like really in the world that Don Cornelius built. And so to answer your question, I think that I mostly just wanted to write a book and pray. At first, I just wanted to start again and kind of renew the book in the spirit of writing something beautiful about Soul Train. And that was my only goal when I set back out, when I like discarded of the first half of the book and said, okay, let me try again. I said, let me start small and just write something that feels good about Soul Train and just see what happens from there. Well, you made me feel good about Soul Train. I'm a little bit older than you, so I came, I, I arrived halfway through the 70s. I remember watching Soul Train in real time. I'm also from Chicago, so Don right. Cornelius is like, you know, writ large here in our history. Um, you know, one of the things you do here is that I think is so magical in the midst of putting this all in the context of pretty much everything, right? That we know to be pop culture, that we know about American history, is you are, you have the, you basically, you know, these tributes to these incredible people, these incredible pioneers like a Don Cornelius or, yeah. you know, like a Sun Ra or, you know, any number of people that just, and you, you kind of drop them like these little gems. And it reminded me of another book that I don't know if you've had a chance to read uh, or not, but Alice Randall's Black Bottom Saints. Oh, yes. <laughs> One, so this book has gotten compared to that book a few different times. Has and I'm it? always okay. like, 
that book is, I mean, that book is far beyond. I mean, Alice Randall's brilliant in a way that I can't fathom. And so uh, it's a real honor, but I think that book is doing something far beyond what I set out to do. I, you know, I think they're doing complimentary things is what I would say. Um, we had uh, we had her here on the podcast. She was a joy and a delight. So, yeah, no, I, I think I think they're doing complimentary things. And I'm so glad that they both exist in the world. And I'm so glad that they both came out in, in a similar time frame because i think that we are in a moment where we're kind of like there's a lot of talk about trauma right Right, now and i think that as you point out some of that is inherent to our discussion we can't really discuss like black history in america the so-called black experience in america without discussing it but i do think both of you do something here where and I love that you wrote this. You said, you know, joy seems too small a word. <laughs> you know, you were talking about it in, in terms of playing spades. Yeah. Um, and I admit, I'm, I'm not a spades player. I'm just going to leave that right there. <laughs> make of make of that what you will. <laughs> but <laughs> we're going back to you. This was a, you know, this is the project that, you know, the research from both you and Alice, I think that's what I was really kind of getting into. Like, yeah. so extensive, so complete. Um what was that process like? And like, when did you, when do you, how do you even begin that? Well, for me, and I will say really quickly, I, you know, I'm such a big fan of Alice Randall's and early on I was trying to send her a book and then we just couldn't figure out how to do it. I got to like, I got to figure out, I'm just such a big fan and like Black Bottom Saints means so much to me and is something that I think will inform my work for years and years and years to come. So before I go on about myself, I just wanted to like give her some real time flowers because I, I just, our uh, work's so important. Um, yeah, for me, so often I think my research process and other books and research processes have been like really text heavy or internet rabbit hole heavy, but always text old books or old articles. And then I would allow for the text to lead me to something visual. Here, my research process was so visual because I wanted to see some of the miracles of these performances or photos of them and then try to articulate them to an audience as though I was there. What's like one thing that fast that blows my mind is that like on the internet right now, you can access almost the whole of Josephine Baker's career, 50 years of Josephine Baker performances, you know, from the twenties to the seventies, you can watch her full career evolve and watch along with that, watch her politics evolve, watch her like physical abilities evolve. You know, one, you know, the thing about Justine Baker is I wish that more people would talk about her as an athlete. I think like in her, in the early decades of her performances, she was just like performing things on stage that were immense feats of athleticism. But I, I think through watching and through witnessing some of these things, I grew a sense of wonder and awe with the generosity of Black evolution and the way that Black folks are not monolithic in that evolution. I could have watched all those Soul Train episodes with the sound off and still have gotten a feel for how Black fashion, Black hair, Black politics, Black performance evolved in those years, mm-hmm. you know? And that was just like a 18-year window. Um, and so that that was so much of the research was just being in awe of performances and then running to the page to share what I'd witnessed. I think that's... I don't know if I can ever write a book like this again because... So few other books I think that I'm interested in would call for me to really just steep myself in miracles and then run to the mountaintop and shout about the miracles. Oh, I love that phrasing. Um, and then this is, I mean, to our listeners, 
if you have not read this yet, it, it is unlike anything I've ever read. So, you know, I think that it does belong in certain company. I will not embarrass you with any more, any more comparisons. But, um, you know, I, I, the Josephine Baker piece, I think for me, instantly engaged me with this book. She is a, someone who's always fascinated me. But you also did something here for her, I would say. You did something for her because, you know, I know she inspired this book. I know you dedicated it to her. But even for my generation, right, you know, like one ahead of yours, like so many of us, like, we just kind of knew her through representation on screen, you know, like whether you're talking about like this, you know, the 30-year-old HBO biopic starring Lynn Whitfield, who did a great job. Right? Great job. You know? Great job. Or, you know, more recently in a few scenes in Lovecraft Country, yeah. right? But you really bring her back to life in like full, in a full dimensional frame. And I love that you just talked about how we can access her performances because as soon as you started talking about just movement and acrobat, like I, I was thinking about the way you described her. I think people think of her in this banana skirt and you were talking about the athleticism with which she moved, right? <laughs> you right. know, and I was like, I just thought it was so incredible. So like, were you trying to, I guess, yeah, give her her flowers, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, and particularly because I found myself most fascinated with her later life. Not just her work with the French Resistance, but her coming back to, you know, the March on Washington has been historicized and presented as through such a masculine lens where folks don't know that Josephine Baker spoke in the March on Washington. I have, you know, I'm a, such a big fan of Josephine Baker's full life, and I did not know she spoke at the March on Washington until like five years ago, you know? And her speech is so, it's not very long, but it's so, it's defiant, it, it is teeming with rage, but it's also funny. It's immensely self-aware. It's like incredibly, you know, one thing I think people don't talk about Josephine Baker is that she seemed to be so self-aware of her contradictions, of her actual power, you know, the power that she commanded, particularly the, the, way, the, the way that she could control men. Uh, mm -hmm. in the, I talk about this in the book, in the limited yeah. imagination of the yeah. the male imagination, how she could really take up some real estate and use that not only to her advantage, but to the advantage of the people she cared about. And I wanted to bring this speech to life, but also really, I was just so enamored with her late career because I think, I, I just don't want to present anyone, particularly not Black women, and particularly not Black women who have died Young, because I, I still think Josephine Baker died. She had a she had a life that was full, but still died young. You know, she had a life where she did a lot, but still died young. Whitney Houston had a life where she did a lot, but still died very young. I don't want to present these folks as only vessels for trauma or only as tragic figures. Uh, that doesn't serve the way I view them, or what makes me excited about them, or. Like what makes me miss someone like Whitney Houston, someone who's like I, whose life I was present for. Thankfully, I don't think of Whitney Houston as a as merely a tragic figure, and I think I can do that and stay. Though I still wish she were with us. It is a tragedy that she is no longer with us. I believe, but I don't think her life is one of only tragedy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I totally agree with you. And it, it's, it's interesting you would bring up the two of them because, you know, as a former performer myself, I remember having paper dolls of Josephine Baker when I was a little girl and like her being the first black woman I'd ever seen like immortalized that way. I think I had her, I had, I think Lena Horne and yeah. Ethel Waters, right? Like this little paper, <laughs> paper doll book. I was very, you know, I must've been like seven. And Whitney Houston was the first person who let me know I could be a singer, right? Like, that, yeah. like the first person I remember really, you know, like her and Natalie Cole and like people like that. But like Whitney was in my time, right? She was like within reach. Uh, she wasn't such an adult to me. And I love that you, when you write about her, you write about her youth. Again, you, you, you make her very whole, which thank you for that. Because I think it is very important that we do remember more than trauma. Um, on that note, though, I have to, I have to bring up something that stuck out to me. <laughs> you talk a lot about being from Columbus and mm-hmm. your love of place. And, you know, you and I have something in common, not just that we're both Midwesterners, but while I live in Chicago and was partially raised here, I'm from Minneapolis. And oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so there is something about this. I, I'm asking really because I, I guess I've, I've been struggling with it as of late, understandably. And I wonder if you have two this reconciling of your love of of home, your love of, mm, I don't know if I'm phrasing it completely correctly, but I think you know what I'm getting at here in terms of how we preserve these places of origin, these places of our origin for ourselves in our memory. And and don't just, you know, kind of sink into the trauma of the moment and how and what your home is becoming, right? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think... um... I mean, one thing that it feels important for me to say is that, like, it's hard or it's complicated to be mm-hmm. Black in America and love any place. Yeah. Or at, le- at least I think with it, Josephine, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> I think it can be. I don't want to speak for every, you know, I can't speak for every Black person, but I think it can be. And, you know, so many stories of, I think, particularly Black Midwesterners are story. I mean, nationally and globally in some ways, but I think Black Midwesterners specifically, there are so much of our story is a story of migration. and yeah either stopping or continuing to move. It's why, you know, Chicago is somewhat distinctly Southern in some ways, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, or very like, much so. You know, yes. the things I love about Chicago the most are that it is uh, somewhat Southern. There are remnants of, of like, you very say country. It's south. okay. Yeah. We, know, we know we're up South. We know. Like, but I think about this. I think about, like, I think about 90s rap in Chicago, how we get a group like Crucial Conflict. You know what I mean? Like, how Dayton, Ohio gets some of the sounds that came out of there, the funk era. And so all this is to say, I think I love the history that remains while being somewhat frustrated with how eager it is for America to forget history while kind of building on top of it, right? I live, you know, I, I got, you know, I settled down in Columbus last year and I settled down in a neighborhood that's like the very, maybe one of the last historically black neighborhoods in the city, you know, very black neighborhood. Like Malcolm came here back in the day, 
MLK came here, black artists came through here, plays at the theater, you know, Diana Washington, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even with all this history, the neighborhood is called Bronzeville. It was renamed or rechristened by the mayor before this one as King Lincoln, because, you know, it's uh, there's the Martin Luther King Center on one end and the Lincoln Theater on the other end. They thought, you know, but this is all to say that earlier this year, a white artist was hired to come in and paint a mural on a building in the, in the neighborhood. And of course, they painted like Abraham Lincoln very large. And we got like a tiny little Martin Luther King in the corner in like a smattering of other black icons. And it's like, there's so much wild about that. But also Columbus, we don't, one, anybody trying to see like Abraham Lincoln in this neighborhood. You know what I mean? Right. That's first of all. But also <laughs> Columbus has a legacy of black artists. I'm not just talking about myself. I mean, like before me, Amina Rob, the great Amina Robinson is from right out here. You know what I mean? Like there are great black artists who, who came up through Columbus who deserve much more love and respect than I'm willing to give Abraham Lincoln. And so I, I think to answer your question in a, in a kind of condensed way, even though I just gave a very long answer. This is your floor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's an eagerness with which like black contributions to culture and, are not forgotten, but the black people who made the contributions are forgotten. And therefore, and therefore their histories are forgotten. And then places become reformatted, like actual geographies become reformatted with that in mind. And so even a part of this book was a part of a small role in correcting the record as far as I could. Understanding that I don't have the institutional power to correct all the records that deserve to be corrected. But when I think of someone like Ellen Armstrong, who was a brilliant magician who performed miracles for her people, you know, who was performing to Black people in churches and barns. And there's so little historical record of her that bothered me. And I was like, okay, well, even if I'm just writing 800 words in a book, maybe that is something that can start to correct the record in another direction. I mean, I love that passage because it was such a literal interpretation of Black girl magic. And I was like, this is dope. Like, I, I didn't know that history. I thought it was really... Um, and there were a lot of histories I did not... I just Even of people I, I thought I knew that I didn't know here. And again, that's, that's, that's a tribute to you and the research you put in here. Um, but obviously, this isn't just a book about performance as we typically interpret it. It's also about the performance of what we call Blackness. Right. right in America, yeah. you know, this this quote where you say a better and more interesting conversation to have, I think, is the one about how we are all outside the borders of someone else's blackness. And it, I felt like what you were talking about there, what you were talking about throughout this book and highlighting all these very different but ultimately stories that intersect in blackness. Right. <laughs> was a type of African-American exceptionalism that works mm -hmm. in tandem with what we commonly call the black experience. Is that a semi-correct read? Yeah, I think Can you elaborate correct. on that? Yeah, I mean, so much of that particular chapter was mulling over, circling that idea. Mm -hmm. And also just circling the actual pleasure that I have in consistently being reminded of multitudinous, the multitudinous nature of Black folks. Mm -hmm. Even if that lands me on the outside of some of those multitudes, right? Because of course it should. It, it, it's require, I'm required to be on the outside of someone else's idea of what blackness is mm -hmm. uh with pleasure i sit on the outside of that sometimes with pleasure because like 
I don't want to be about some of the some of the shit other people be on. Sorry for cursing, I guess. No, um, you're fine. This is uh, the proof. Oh, uh, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, but sometimes because I acknowledge that my experience of blackness is like not all encompassing. Can't right. be. It's impossible to be. And that means that I can learn from or celebrate from afar or uplift or there are other ways to, to participate in those modes of blackness that aren't centering myself, which is a hard lesson to learn, I think, or was for me and one that I'm sure I'm still learning in some ways, but uh, detaching my ego from my own performance of an interpretation of my own blackness has mm. been really vital because it has allowed for me, it has allowed me to love black folks more, it, to be brief about it. It's allowed me to love the multitudes we contain which I think I already had a grasp of, which I, in that chapter, I also write about the fact that like growing up, the people putting me on the music were all black folks. So I didn't have that experience. And I don't mean to knock anyone who did have an experience where they listened to music and black people made fun of them or listened to whatever. But I grew up in, the, you know, my formative years were in the 90s, had older siblings. A lot of my homies had older siblings and everyone was just listening to everything. Everyone was kind of experimenting with alternative music. And so everything I heard, almost everything I heard came from the hands of a Black person. I got into punk because Black punks got me into punk. The first time I heard Nirvana, it was because my older brother put me on a Nirvana. And so I didn't have, there was no space in my mind where I thought Black people don't love this music or Black people are getting ridiculed somewhere for this music. Because my... And this is a privilege, I suppose, but thankfully, my entire ecosystem revolved around Black people who were curious about listening to things to varying degrees. And I do say in the book, of course, there were like, there were folks on the school bus who only wanted to hear, hear hip hop, but that was cool. They weren't clowning on anyone. They were just like, this is what I'm on. And so I think that is a good microcosm to me of how I first came to understand or think about the, the varied natures of blackness, but in a way, when I was young, I wasn't even thinking about it as that. I just thought this is my ecosystem. These are my people. This is my neighborhood. This is what's happening. And I think in some ways my brain still orients itself towards that, even though, you know, it's, it's a bit more complex or, or diverse now. Yeah, no, I mean, that, I mean, I, I was thinking of it as you were saying it as, as being a Gen X or, you know, being a self-identified Gen X or maybe on the cusp of, you know, millennialism, but being of an era where, hip hop and grunge were rising at the same time, right? Yeah. You know, or like those, like these things were in tandem. Like I'm the MTV generation. So right. I remember, you know, when they didn't play black people on TV. And I also remember coming home after school and watching Yo! MTV rap. So, you know, there's that. But, you know, so you've said, and I can't say I'm disappointed because you, you did something so complete here. I, I'm, I wouldn't dare ask you to do it again. <laughs> but <laughs> this is your fifth book. Please yeah. correct me if I'm wrong. No, it is. And, my and I know some of the, <laughs> I know. And, and I mean, talk about, you know, you were talking about people living full lives uh, and still being very young and you are, but some of those books have been volumes of poetry. Some have been essays. I guess, where would you say this stands in relation to your previous body of work? And how would you like us to use this? Well, I, I definitely love it the most and mm. I loved writing it the most. And I've, I've been thinking about this because I don't want to disparage the processes that went into my other, the creation of my other books, but so many of them were frantic or emotionally draining or just very difficult to write. So much so that when they entered the world, I was kind of like, 
okay, I'm glad to be done with this. This is now away from me. And for the first time with this book, I felt a real level of heartbreak letting it go because I had such a good time writing it. I had so much fun writing it. I had so much fun going to the places that I needed to go to in order to write it. And I felt so much pleasure unlocking the parts of myself that felt a strong desire to be celebratory without argument or without presenting myself as an expert on anything and just kind of holding something in my hand and saying, I would love to show this to you. How can I make this feel to you as it feels to me? And so writing this book was the best experience, writing experience I've ever had. One thing I'm mourning is that I just don't know if I'll ever have a writing experience like this again. Mm. I, I hope I do, but I, I'm acutely, now that I know what it's like to feel like to write a book like this, I'm also very aware of the fact that it might not come again, that feeling. Um, and I'm kind of training myself for that. I assume you're taking a beat. Are you taking a beat right now? Or are you working on something already? <laughs> I'm working on something already, but I'm taking a okay. beat. I'm like not really fully in it yet, thankfully. Okay. I'm taking I'm taking like six months or so, thankfully, before I get in it. Well, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't know if I have Black Girl Magic per se, but if I have a wish for you, <laughs> it is that you somehow manage to retain the joy that you brought to this book and that you brought to, I, I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say brought to me reading it. <laughs> It's like such a joyful experience. I was telling our producer, I was like, this book was so fun to read. Like, I'm so into it. (laughs) Just, I want to read it again and again. It's so good. That makes me so happy because I think, like, when it did come out, my one wish was that it was an enjoyable read. my, My one thing was, like, I hope people enjoy reading this as much as I enjoyed writing it. And that's it. Like, if that happens, I'll feel like I have accomplished something. Well, you accomplished it with me, and I've also really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much on behalf of The Root for coming onto, coming onto its lit and, and blessing us with your presence and Thank you. with this incredible book. I, I hope it will not be the last time we see you. Uh, a Little Devil in America, everybody, please, please check this book out. It is so affirming. <laughs> Thanks, Hanif. Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I appreciate it so much. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. Our theme song was penned by yours truly and producer Scott Jacoby. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Maisha, that's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A, and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. And before we go, we always like to talk a little bit about what we're currently reading. What I'm currently reading right now is The Second by Carol Anderson, who also wrote the bestseller White Rage. Uh, This is a book about the Second Amendment, really the history of it. And she goes into such depth here, really giving context to 
how much of the Second Amendment and so many other laws and, and you know, mores in, in the United States are brokered around inequality for Black people. And I, I just, I'm, I'm fascinated by this dive and um, really looking forward to speaking with Carol about this soon, actually. But in the meantime, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we will see you next week. In the meantime, you know what to do. Keep it lit. <laughs>